I'm Dave Breckenridge, host of 10-3. Today we bring you episode one of The Dark North, Gangs of Montreal. It's a new true crime podcast being produced by the Montreal Gazette and Post Media. Episode two is now live, so if you like this, definitely be sure to go find it on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you listen, and subscribe. We hope you like it. I'm Paul Cherry, and this is The Dark North, Gangs of Montreal. This is a new podcast about organized crime in Montreal. I have covered organized crime in this city for nearly 20 years, and there has always been a lot to write about. Murders, bank robberies, extortion, drugs and prostitution, the biker war, the rise and fall of the Rizzuto crime organization that ran the mob here for decades. The gangs that operate in Montreal have connections across the country and around the world. They run criminal organizations that make a lot of money. Gangs of Montreal starts in the 1970s, and along the way, we'll talk to people who were there when it happened. The voices you will hear are criminals, police officers, academics, and journalists. Today, in our first episode, we're going to go back to where things began, when the Hells Angels biker gang arrived, and a group of Sicilian mobsters took control of the Montreal Mafia. It was pure coincidence, but those two events happened just weeks apart in December 1977 and January 1978. Montreal is probably the capital of organized crime in North America. It got really ridiculous. We had so many motorcycle guys in Montreal. It was crazy. I mean, you had the, you had the Popeyes, you had the Satan's Choice, you had the Outlaws, you had the Condors. I couldn't believe of petty things they were doing. You know, you're talking about the mob. They're doing petty things out there. You know, the Hells Angels, they are involved in drug trafficking. They are involved in money laundering now. They are partner of all the major organizations in Quebec and Canada, and, and they have contact all over the world now. We all know what happened to the Violis, they all got shot. Back in 1977, Montreal was a city where criminals wanted to be. A lot of nightclubs, bars, and restaurants meant lots of money for gangsters. From kickbacks, bookmaking, prostitution, and drugs. The Port of Montreal was a gateway to North America for drug traffickers. Hundreds of ships docked there every year and smugglers knew how to hide drugs in them. Pietro Paletti is a retired Montreal police officer. He investigated organized crime in Montreal. Montreal is probably the capital of organized crime in North America. We had the biggest players in Montreal. How do I come to this conclusion? It's very, very simple. Money. All kinds of gangs were making money from crime in Montreal. The Italian mafia, Irish gangs, French-Canadian gangs, and then there were the motorcycle gangs. Motorcycle gangs started forming in Quebec in the mid-1960s. By the 1970s, more than a dozen different biker gangs were operating in the Montreal area. André Butch Bouchard is a retired Montreal police officer and the former head of the city's homicide squad. They were little shits, honest to God. You know, they, that's all they were. Uh, they were little tough guys. Uh, you got them alone, they weren't tough anymore. See, and these guys all at 15 had bicycles. 
So they were bicycle gangs. They weren't motorcycle gangs. You know, they were bicycle gangs when they were 14, 15. And they actually just started buying motorcycles and they got into this. Uh, it was ridiculous. It got really ridiculous. We had so many motorcycle guys in Montreal. It was crazy. I mean, you had the, you had the Popeyes. You had the Satan's Choice. You had the Outlaws. You had the Condors. Every district had in Montreal. You know, downtown Montreal, things like they all had their bike, uh, bikers. But I mean, they're, they're slobs. I mean, they are either big, fat slobs, okay, with big arms, okay, and tattoos, or they were little skinny shits with beards and completely drugged out 99% of the time. In the 1970s, Montreal's downtown Crescent Street, with its restaurants and nightclubs, was a popular destination for people looking to have a good time and for organized crime. Bikers would park their motorcycles on the street, harass visitors, and shake down club owners for money. And if you needed to find someone in the West End gang, that's where you would find them. The Montreal police set up a special squad to try to clear the motorcycle gangs from Crescent. Andre Savard was one of the police officers assigned to the anti-biker squad at the time. Crescent Street was the place at the time. A lot of action happened there. Uh, it was always full, uh, especially during the summer, uh, always full of people. So uh, we had three different gangs going over there. Whether to uh, scare people off, trying to collect some money from the owner. The clients were scared. The, uh, they had motorcycle gangs coming in there and uh, asking the girls where were their husband, you know, to, to dance. They didn't want to dance. They start fighting with the husband. There were so many of those gangs that uh, they couldn't hire a big enough doorman to control them. And no matter how big he was, you know, still couldn't control. They would wait for him outside the door. The most serious gang was the Popeyes. They were known to be the most violent biker gang in Quebec. They went to the small town of Papineauville in Western Quebec one night. They got drunk and tore the hotel apart. They held the hotel owner's wife and two daughters hostage. Despite their notoriety, the patches that they wore on their leather jackets actually had a cartoon character, Popeye, sitting squatting over a tiny bicycle. But the Popeyes had ambitions. Michel Auger is a Montreal journalist who covered crime in the city for decades. In the 1970s, he watched as criminal biker gangs fought for supremacy. The Popeyes were uh, a bunch of French-Canadian-speaking guys, and their main competitors, the Saturn Choice, were um, not more exclusively, but mostly uh, young guys speaking English. So there were some fights between them because it was not really big tra drug trafficking at that time, but they were uh, trying to be the top biker gang in Montreal. That's when the two Quebec biker gangs looked south of the border. The Hells Angels and the Outlaws were two feuding American biker gangs that were looking to expand internationally. In July 1977, the Outlaws took over the Satan's Choice in Quebec, setting up their first Canadian chapter. Then the Popeyes made their move. Here's Michel Auger. So the Hells Angels in Montreal, the Popeyes decided that they should go to meet the Hells Angels and uh, a biker by the name, nickname of Boston. The nickname was added to his original nickname. He went to Boston because he was the only one speaking English, probably, and he negotiated at the time with the Hells Angels to join the organization in Montreal. 
Five months later, on December 5th, 1977, the Popeyes became the Hells Angels' first chapter in Canada. The first leader of the Canadian Hells Angels was a man named Yves Buteau. André Sedelo is a retired crime reporter with the La Presse newspaper. Yves Buteau was the, the first boss of the chapter of the Hells Angels in Quebec in 1977. He was uh, reputed as a very secret man, very uh, good leader. He was reputed for his coolness. And he, he was ambitious, that guy, you know, in the Hells Angels, you know, because he was a, he was a, a guy, a tough guy, and he knows what he, wa he wants to do. And uh, the Hells Angels, they use him to make expansion, not only in Quebec, but uh, all over the Canada. Buteau, he received the, the colors for the first international members of the Hells Angels, and he received his color directly from Sony Barger, the, the big chief of the Hells Angels all over the world. And it was uh, quite an honor. You know what, in, in those times. Now that they had taken over the Popeyes, the Hells set their sights on eliminating the outlaws in Montreal. Three outlaws were killed over the next few months, and two Hells Angels were murdered inside a bar. It was Quebec's first significant biker war. By the mid-1980s, the Hells Angels were the most powerful biker gang in Quebec. With Buteau in charge, the Hells Angels started to expand. They set up a second chapter in the city of Laval, just north of Montreal. And they moved the Montreal chapter to Sorel, a sleepy town east along the St. Lawrence River, well outside of the city. The Hells Angels also took over a biker gang in Sherbrooke called the Gitans. Some of the members of that club eventually went on to become among Canada's most prolific drug smugglers. You know, the Hells Angels, they are involved in drug trafficking. They are involved in money laundering now. They are partner of all the major organizations in Quebec and Canada, and, and they have contact all over the world now. Buto organized all that, that structure that we know now for the Hells Angels. Seven weeks after the Hells took over the Popeyes, a bitter feud that had been brewing between Italian gangsters in Montreal came to a deadly end. Since the 1950s, the Montreal Mafia had been controlled by the Catroni organization. Immigrants from the southern Italian province of Calabria. But in the early 1970s, a man from the Italian island of Sicily began to stir things up. Nicola Rizzuto came from a town in western Sicily called Cattolica Ariclia. Like so many other Italians, he emigrated to North America. He settled in Montreal in 1954 with his family. To the outside world in Montreal, Nicola Rizzuto was the owner of a paving company. In the criminal underworld, though, he was an ambitious upstart. He was already setting up a lucrative drug trafficking network between Venezuela and Montreal. Rizzuto took on a leadership role among Sicilian criminals in Montreal. For a while, they took orders from the Calabrian Catronis. But the Sicilians didn't like it. He ignored key rules of the mafia, like not telling Montreal mob boss Vic Catroni and his underboss Paolo Violi what he was up to. Now you had the Violis who were regarded as loose cannons, uh, brothers tough, and the war began between the Violis and the Rizzutos. In the 1970s, Quebec held a public inquiry into organized crime, hoping to expose what criminals were up to. 
The shroud of secrecy around organized crime was lifted thanks to a daring undercover Montreal police officer. That cop, Robert Menard, posed as an electrician and managed to rent an apartment above Paolo Violi's ice cream shop. Police installed hidden microphones in the building and for six long years listened in as Violi and Catroni conducted their illegal business. There were wiretaps on the phone used to call Calabria, Sicily, and New York to talk to the leaders of other Italian clans. Some cases they would say, uh, somebody's listening to us, let's talk low. So they they would lower their voice and still talk and think that we weren't listening, hearing them. They even tried to find the apparatus we had in there. They violently turned his old office upside down, never found anything. So after that, he started talking again. Ezio Turin was a Montreal police officer who listened to hours and hours of wiretap conversations between Montreal mobsters. The conversations were recorded and translated from Italian. And uh, Paolo Violi and two of his men were in the office in their uh, gelateria on uh, Jean Talon. And they were taking the ice cream machines apart and uh, tables apart and uh, offices apart to try to find where the bug was. And they never found it. You know, it was just listening to them swear and where the hell is it? Boom, boom, boom. They even uh, unscrewed the, the light bulbs. It was crazy. At the organized crime inquiry, Violi's phone calls and conversations were used to show exactly what the Montreal Mafia was up to. They were rigging elections, running betting parlors, and importing drugs. They used intimidation to squeeze out rival businesses. They sold rotten meat to people who had come to Montreal for the World Expo in 1967. They threatened people at gunpoint, broke their arms, beat them with broomsticks. They were also targeting the Italian community. I couldn't believe of petty things they were doing. You know, you're talking about the mob. They're Mm -hmm. doing petty things out there. Example, they would, uh, when you go to a Catholic church, they give you a pamphlet. and In the back of it, there's uh, the weddings that are going to happen in the next few months, right? They would get these pamphlets and they would send people in to rob the gifts and the envelopes if they had money because a lot lot of Europeans give money and they would try to, to get into that. I found that very cheap on their, on, their, on their behalf. Another thing the wiretap showed was that the heads of the mafia in Montreal were fed up with Nicolo Rizzuto and that they wanted to get rid of him. Violi said Rizzuto was jealous of him. Mediators from New York City came to Montreal to meet with Violi and with Rizzuto in an attempt to smooth things over. Rizzuto knew his life was in danger and fled to Venezuela. There he worked with an influential group of fellow Sicilians, the Contrera Caruana Organization. They were already by then one of the world's most prolific groups of drug smugglers, with tentacles in Europe, the Caribbean, and South America. The Sicilians, they export the new era of the mafia. They were international. The Rizzuto clan at the, at the beginning, they were involved in the heroin traffic. They were very close, the Contrera Caruana and the Rizzuto, they were very close then. Back in Montreal, Catroni and Violi were called to testify before the Organized Crime Commission. Catroni was sent to jail for a year when he claimed not to know anything about the mafia. 
Violi was thrown in jail for refusing to testify at all. And one of the key figures in the mafia actually threw back the question to the commission and asked them, what is mafia? But Violi's silence at the inquiry was too little too late. The wiretaps made so much secret mafia business public that it was as if Violi had broken the mafia's rule of omerta, the law of silence. His days were numbered. Meanwhile, back in Venezuela, Rizzuto was ready to act. He and his associates were plotting to kill Paolo Violi. A bloody mafia war broke out. First, one of Violi's consigulares, or advisors, was shot as he left the screening of the movie The Godfather. Then, a Rizzuto loyalist was shot dead at his North End Cafe. Next, Violi's brother was killed. Montreal police were unwittingly onto the plot to kill Paolo Violi weeks before it was even carried out. A tip from someone living near Violi's old bar noticed a van that had been left there for days and parked overnight illegally. When police checked it out, they found two guns inside. It turned out Niccolo Rizzuto's brother-in-law had rented the van under a fake name. For nearly a month, Police kept an eye on the van and watched as the brother-in-law and another man linked to Rizzuto hung out at malls near Violi's old bar. The men even sometimes changed their clothing, probably so no one would recognize them as they drove by the bar several times a day. The police decided to stop the surveillance of the van, probably because it was getting too expensive to pay officers to keep an eye on it. On the night of January 22nd, 1978, Violi got a phone call inviting him to play cards at his old bar. When Violi got there, a wiretap on a phone inside the bar recorded as a man said, Il porco è qui. The pig is here. As Violi played cards, a masked man fired a shotgun at him. Police found the gun, which had been made in Italy, in a snowbank outside the bar. It was one of the weapons they had seen in the van that they had been tailing just a few days before. Minutes after the shooting, Rizzuto's brother-in-law picked up the wiretap phone inside the bar and told Rizzuto, who was in Venezuela at the time, Il porco è morto. The pig is dead. Three men linked to Rizzuto, including the brother-in-law who called him from the bar, later pleaded guilty to conspiring to kill Violi. I think his downfall was the fact that he was doing so many stupid things to to the Italian community. It didn't go through well. We were able to listen to him for so long without him finding out about it. The uh, Italian faction of the the mob spoke with Rizzuto. That's how he went down. The last Violi brother was killed two years later. He was seated in his kitchen and police believe he was taken down by a sniper while his wife and two children were in the same house. While the Violis had been shaking down the Italian community, the Rizzutos had other ideas. Here's Pietro Poletti. They knew, the Rizzutos, that we have to stop going against their own kind, the small businessmen. You know, let's go corporate. Let's make the money and invest it. They saw the new market, cocaine, and they had the contacts in Venezuela and South America. So now we have two new leaders of organized crime in Montreal, the Rizzutos and the Hells Angels. They were to go on to manage almost all aspects of organized crime in the city for decades to come. And the arrival of cocaine in the 1980s would bring them more money than they could have imagined. Next time. 
they got these uh, importations of cocaine coming from you know, Mexico, Colombia, you name it, was coming in. And into the waterfront, the wharf was crazy. They uh, were bringing in tons of it. Every club on a weekend would go through easily a kilo of coke. It, it, it was crazy. The years, uh, you'd, you'd walk into a bathroom and uh, believe me, it wasn't uh, for personal use. It was just a, a place to consume. On the bars, we'd walk in after hours clubs. It was all over the place, cocaine. And that changed the fabric uh, of organized crime. The Dark North, Gangs of Montreal, is written and produced by Mudik Baudin and me, Paul Cherry. Additional production and editing by Carson Jarama. Theme music is by Bryce Hall. Emma McKay is the Montreal Gazette's digital executive producer, and Lucinda Choden is our editor-in-chief. Special thanks for this episode to Bassem Bashra, David Rudin, and Walter Bukignani. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ten Three is produced by Carson Jarama, theme music by Bryce Hall. Don't forget, go subscribe to Dark North wherever you get your audio. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.